You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is Lecture 3 of the Lecture Cycle by Rudolf Steiner, entitled, According to Matthew, the Gospel of Christ's Humanity. Before beginning today, I would like to add briefly to what I said yesterday about describing the great and significant events in human evolution in a language derived from cosmic processes. I also mentioned that ordinary words cannot express these great mysteries clearly and comprehensively. The important interaction between Zarathustra's two great disciples, Moses and Hermes Trismegistus, or Thoth, can be described as a recapitulation of one of the greatest cosmic events known to esoteric wisdom or esoteric science. Let's look back to the time when our earth had recently separated from the sun and these heavenly bodies existed independently in the cosmos. Imagine the combined mass of the earth and the sun as a unity in the very distant past, a huge cosmic body that separated into two parts. We will disregard other cosmic processes that paralleled the separation of sun and earth, specifically the separation of other planets in our solar system. For our purposes, we can ignore the timing of those other events and discuss a single separation, with the sun forming one center and the earth the other. When we consider this separation, we must bear in mind that what we now call the earth still contained all the matter that now belongs to the moon. At this point, we must distinguish between the sun and a body consisting of earth plus moon. The spiritual and physical forces that were present before this separation also divided with the coarser, denser forces accompanying the earth and the finer, higher, spiritual, etheric forces accompanying the sun. Next, we must imagine a long period when the earth and the sun continued to evolve separately and the sun's influence on the earth was completely different than it is today. Initially, the earth's activity was inwardly directed, self-contained and relatively unreceptive to the spiritual influences in the sun's rays beaming down on the earth. During this period, the earth began to desiccate or mummify and if it had retained the moon in its womb, the life that now exists on earth would never have been possible. As long as the earth included the moon, the sun's activity could not influence the earth as strongly as it did later, after the body that is now the moon, both its substance and the spiritual beings associated with it had separated from the earth. The moon's separation from the earth is also related to another phenomenon, Earthly life, as we know it, evolved slowly and gradually through successive stages. Spiritual science describes the first stage as the old Saturn stage, followed by the old sun, the old moon, and finally the earth stage. When the earth first began to assume its current form, it was still combined with the substance of all the planets of our solar system, which were later differentiated through forces active during the Saturn, sun, and moon stages. We know from spiritual science that the configuration of matter during the Saturn stage was not the same as it is today. On old Saturn there were not yet any solid, liquid, or even gaseous bodies, 
Saturn's structure was based entirely on gradations of heat. Old Saturn had a body of heat, and everything that evolved on old Saturn developed within that element. Evolution then progressed from Saturn's heat to the next stage, the old Sun. At this stage, as described in my outline of esoteric science, Saturn's heat body began to condense. Of course, some of its heat remained the same, but some of it condensed into the Sun's gaseous body. At this stage, however, dilution as well as condensation occurred, that is, part of the heat evolved upward to form light. In the Sun stage we discover a cosmic body that contains air, heat, and light. During the old Moon stage, which immediately preceded the Earth stage, further condensation produced the liquid state in addition to the gaseous state, and the process of spiritualization or etherization also produced a new element. The old Moon stage was characterized not only by the presence of light, but also by the so-called sound ether. This is identical to today's chemical ether, but it is not the same as sound or tone as described in physics, which is a mere reflection of the cosmic, excuse me, a mere reflection of the music of the spheres or etheric tone that pervades the cosmos and was once perceptible to clairvoyance. <clears throat> when we speak of the sound ether, we mean something much more spiritual or etheric than sound as physicists know it. Next, we move on from the old moon stage to the earth stage, in which condensation produced solid matter. Solid bodies as they exist on earth did not appear in the old moon. They developed only during the earth stage, where they existed alongside heat, gas, or air, and liquid. On the spiritual side, the earth stage includes the life ether in addition to the light and sound ethers. On earth, therefore, we have seven elemental states, whereas old Saturn had only one, the middle state or heat. When the earth emerged from cosmic darkness at the beginning of its present stage of existence, it was still united with the sun and the other planets, and we must imagine it as working within the seven elemental states. Something quite remarkable occurred, however, when the sun separated from the earth. Of all the influences that beam from the sun to the earth, only heat and light, which belong to the sensory world, are evident in our modern external existence, whereas the phenomena of the sound ether and light ether are not. The effects of the sound ether are not apparent within material existence, except in interactions such as the formation or disintegration of chemical compounds. We perceive light directly. We distinguish degrees of light and darkness. But we cannot directly perceive the life ether in the sun's rays. We perceive its effects in living things, but not the radiant life ether itself. Hence modern science is forced to admit that life itself remains a mystery. The life ether and sound ethers, the two higher etheric manifestations, are the sun's most rarefied elements. They radiate from the sun but remain hidden from ordinary perception and do not manifest directly in earthly processes. The only direct influences of the sound and life ethers that are ordinarily perceptible are within the human constitution. I can describe these ethers most easily in terms of the earthly development of the human being. From very ancient times, even during the Atlantean period, humans possessed the gift of direct clairvoyance and perceived not only the world of the physical senses, but also its spiritual foundations. 
How is this possible? In those ancient times people had access to intermediate states of consciousness between waking and sleeping. In the waking state, modern human beings perceive physical, sense-perceptible objects, but in the sleeping state most people simply exist without perceiving anything at all. If you examine the life of a sleeping person clairvoyantly, however, your discoveries might seem very strange to those who are accustomed only to ordinary perception. When a person sleeps, the capital I and the astral body exist outside the physical and etheric bodies. I have often emphasized that we must not imagine the nocturnal astral body and I as a fog or cloud that remains very close to the physical body. The astral cloud, which is all that is perceptible to lower astral clairvoyance, is only a small part of human existence during sleep. In reality, the sleeping human being is much more expansive. As soon as a person falls asleep, the inner forces of the astral body and the eye begin to expand outward, into and merge with the entire solar system. Enlivening forces from all directions and the entire solar system enter into the human eye and astral body. When we awake, these forces retreat within the narrower confines of the skin, incorporating into the body what was received during the night. Medieval esotericists referred to the human spiritual body as the quote-unquote astral body because of its connection with the stars and the forces it received from them. The sleeping human being does, in fact, expand throughout the entire solar system. What are the forces that pervade the astral body during sleep? When we leave the physical body at night, the astral body is enlivened by the music of the spheres, which at other times is present only in the sound ether. When a violin bow is drawn across the edge of a plate covered with fine particles, the resulting vibrations shape the dust and produce so-called klatni figures. Similarly, the music of the spheres vibrates and pulses through us at night, restoring order and form to the disorder that accumulates during the day as a result of our sensory perceptions. The activity of life, ether, also pulses through us during sleep but we cannot perceive its effects while separated from our physical and etheric bodies. Generally, perception is possible only when we re-enter the physical and etheric bodies and use our physical organs for sensory perception. In ancient times, however, people experienced intermediary states between sleeping and waking. Today, although these states can be induced artificially, it is dangerous to do so under ordinary circumstances. During Atlantean times, such perception was a normal part of human development and allowed people to ascend into the life ether and the music of the spheres. In other words, both the music of the spheres and the life that pervades space and radiates from the sun manifested outwardly on earth, although only in living beings. Ancient clairvoyance allowed people to perceive these effects directly. This possibility gradually faded and the door closed on such perceptions, as the old clairvoyance was lost. But at the same time, the inner power of cognition began to awaken the possibility of internalized thinking. Modern culture is shaped by our inner life of feelings, sensations, thoughts, and mental images, a life that was unknown to early Atlanteans. In Atlantis, people lived in intermediary states, between sleeping and waking, and inhabited a spiritual world. They perceived the sensory world as if in a fog. It eluded their understanding 
because inner reflections of outer life had not yet developed in them. As the old clairvoyance gradually disappeared, outer life began to predominate, and people internalized weak reflections of the music of the spheres and the activity of the life ether. Eventually the music of the spheres fell totally silent, as we became filled with the sensations and perceptions that reflect the outer world and shape our modern inner life. To the same extent that we experienced ourselves as I-beings, we lost our perception of the divine life ether pulsing through the cosmos. Our present state of consciousness has been purchased at the expense of certain aspects of our outer life. As earthly beings we sense within ourselves the life that we can no longer perceive as radiating directly from the sun. Our inner life today includes only subdued reflections of the grand life of the cosmos, the music of the spheres and the life ether. The development of human consciousness recapitulates the evolution of the earth itself. The earth would have become completely self-contained and hardened if it had remained united with all of the matter it contained after separating from the sun. Initially the sun's activity could not intervene in the earth's development, and this situation persisted until the moon separated from the earth. Then the earth expelled the moon, and with it all the substances that prevented the earth from receiving the sun's direct effects. By ejecting the moon, the earth truly opened its being and existence to the effects of the sun, from which it had already separated. The earth reached out to the sun, so to speak, by sending part of itself back toward the sun. This part was the moon. Just as it reflected the sun's light onto the earth, it also reflected the activity of the sun being. Therefore the moon's separation from earth is an extremely important indication of the earth's receptiveness to the sun's effects. This cosmic event had to be recapitulated in human life. Long after the earth had opened itself to the effects of the sun, a time came when it was right for human beings to shut out the sun's direct effects, which the Atlanteans had been able to perceive through clairvoyance. Just as the earth had once begun to harden, there came a time when human beings began to withdraw and to develop an inner life. They could no longer remain open to the sun's activity, but had to develop feeble, internalized reflections of the effects of the life and sound ethers. This phase of human evolution lasted well into the post-Atlantean period. In early Atlantis, people perceived the sun's effects directly. Later, they began to shut themselves off from these effects. But their inner life began to blossom. Eventually, the spiritual powers needed to perceive the sun's effects could be developed only in the holy mysteries through what we might call yoga. This second half of the Atlantean era saw the development of centers that were quite appropriately known as oracles. The purpose of these centers was to teach the holy wisdom to people whose ordinary development no longer permitted them to perceive the direct effects of the sound and life ethers. Students and adherents of the oracles learned to suppress sensory perception in order to perceive the ether's revelations. Even during post-Atlantean times this possibility still persisted in genuine centers of spiritual science and remained so strong that even ordinary science has preserved, though without understanding it, the Pythagorean tradition of the music of the spheres. 
Exoteric science, however, converts the music of the spheres into an abstraction, which it is not, and imagines it as anything but what it is. In fact, in the Pythagorean schools, perceiving the music of the spheres meant being truly receptive to the sound and life ethers. We perceive the outer warmth and light of the sun as feeble reflections of the activities of sound and life. Of all those who pointed to this activity, hidden behind the outwardly visible sun, Zarathustra was the greatest. Translated into modern words, his teaching might say, quote, When you look up at the sun, you perceive its beneficial warmth and light streaming toward the earth. But when you develop higher organs of spiritual perception, you perceive the being of the sun behind the sun's physical existence. You can perceive the effects of sound and, in them, the meaning of life." Zarathustra described the first spiritual element (coughs) that can be perceived behind the physical effects of the sun as Ahura Mazda, the great aura of the sun. It makes sense, then, that Ahura Mazda is also translated as great wisdom, in contrast to the little wisdom that human beings develop within themselves. The great wisdom is perceived in the sun's spiritual aspect, or quote-unquote great aura. A poet, looking back to ancient times in human evolution, expressed this esoteric truth in these words, quote, The sun intones in ancient tourney, with brother spheres a rival song, fulfilling its predestined journey with march of thunder moves along. And that was by uh, Goethe from his Faust Prologue in Heaven. <clears throat> Aesthetes, of course, will consider this wording contrived. They love to call it mere poetic license when Goethe says the sun intones. They have no idea that a poet of Goethe's stature is simply depicting realities when he says the sun intones in ancient tourney, that is, as humankind knew it in ancient times. For initiates, the sun still intones in the same way as Zarathustra pointed out to his pupils, especially his two closest disciples, who reincarnated as Hermes Trismegistus and Moses. In two totally different ways, he made both of them aware of the being behind the light-filled body of the sun. As a result of Zarathustra's instruction, Hermes retained direct perception of what comes from the sun, while Moses retained a kind of memory of the mysteries of sun wisdom. You may recall how an outline of esoteric science describes the earth's separation from the sun, the expulsion of the moon forces from the earth, and the earth's new receptivity. Venus and Mercury exist between the sun and the excuse me Venus and Mercury exist between the earth and the sun the earth separated from the sun and then sent the moon out toward the sun Venus and Mercury then separated from the sun and moved toward the earth thus Venus and Mercury must be seen as approaching the earth from the sun while the moon approaches the sun from the earth relationships within human evolution reflect cosmic relationships The aspect of Zarathustra's sun wisdom that survived in Hermes, who had received Zarathustra's astral body, was its actual radiating element. The aspect that survived in Moses, however, was a self-contained, as it were, planet. Maybe that again, sorry. The aspect that survived in Moses, however, was a self-contained, in quotes, planet of wisdom that had to develop toward the sun's direct emanations. Earthly activity became receptive to the activity of the sun by expelling the moon, 
Similarly, Moses' wisdom became receptive to the sun wisdom that radiated directly from Zarathustra. Moses' earth wisdom and Zarathustra's sun wisdom in Hermes met in Egypt. Moses continued to develop it on his own, absorbing wisdom from Zarathustra at a distance, kindling it in himself, and then radiating it toward his people. This process must be seen as analogous to the expulsion of moon matter from the earth. The wisdom that radiated from Moses to his people can also be called Yahweh wisdom. Correctly understood, the name Yahweh sums up all of Moses' wisdom, and it is not surprising that ancient traditions refer to Yahweh as a moon deity. Many sources cite this fact, but the reason becomes apparent only when we realize the full impact of these profound relationships. Earth had to repel its moon element and send it out toward the sun. Similarly, Moses' earth wisdom had to develop independently after its encounter with Hermes, who possessed Zarathustra's direct wisdom in the form of the latter's sacrificed astral body. We have described the development of the Mosaic tradition of Moses from its encounter with Hermes until the time of David, the royal warrior and divine singer of the Hebrew people. We also saw how this tradition drew closer to the radiating element of sun wisdom during the Babylonian captivity, when Zarathustra himself, under the name of Zarathos or Nazarathos, became the teacher of the Hebrew initiates. As we see, the development of Mosaic wisdom recapitulates the entire cosmic process of the earth's separation from the sun and subsequent events. When the sages of the ancient Hebrews and others recognized such relationships, they were filled with the deepest reverence, as if direct revelations were beaming toward them from the cosmos and cosmic existence itself. They experienced individuals like Moses as messengers of cosmic powers. And if we truly hope to understand those ancient times, we too must be able to sense this. Otherwise our understanding will be empty and abstract. It was important for the wisdom that radiated from Zarathustra through Hermes Trismegistus and Moses to continue to evolve and to appear again later in a different and higher form. To accomplish this, Zarathustra himself, who had already sacrificed his astral and etheric bodies, had to reappear on earth in a physical body that could also be sacrificed. Do you see the wonderful progression here? First, the Zarathustra of ancient times provided the impulse for post-Atlantean development in the ancient Persian or Iranian culture. To set the stage for the next culture, he then relinquished his astral body to Hermes Trismegistus and his etheric body to Moses. But the greatest mystery in human evolution demanded the sacrifice of all three bodies by a single being. To make the third sacrifice, Zarathustra needed a specially prepared physical body. Yesterday we indicated that the body suited to Zarathustra's third great sacrifice was developed through the unique life of the Hebrew people over generations. To produce this body, the Hebrews had to transform direct, external, spiritual, astral vision which had become decadent among the Turanians, into inner activity. That is the secret of the Hebrew people. Among the Turanians, forces inherited from ancient times developed organs of external clairvoyance. But in the Hebrews, those same forces radiated inward, organizing the physical body from within. 
The Hebrews were chosen to develop the ability to sense and feel within themselves an element that formerly had been perceived externally, dispersed in sense-perceptible space. As consciously articulated by the Hebrews, Yahweh concentrates into a single point the great spirit behind all the objects and beings perceived by ancient Atlantean clairvoyance. We are told that Abraham, the progenitor of the ancient Hebrews, first developed the specific internal configuration needed for this new experience. At this point let me comment on something I have mentioned many times before. Sagas and legends provide us with truer, more appropriate images of events in the past than any modern anthropological research that pieces together an image of world history from present-day excavations and individual fragments of monuments. In most cases these ancient legends are confirmed by spiritual scientific research. I deliberately say, quote, in most cases, unquote, because I have not personally investigated whether this statement is true of all authentic legends, though it probably is. When we trace the origins of the Hebrew people, we are also led back to a single progenitor, as the Bible tells us. Abraham is a real figure, not some assumptions based on anthropological research, and what Talmudic legend says about him is absolutely true. This legend describes Araman's father as a commander in the army of a legendary but nonetheless real person whom the Bible calls Nimrod. Those who understood the signs of the times dreamed that the son of Nimrod's commander would dethrone many kings and rulers. When they told Nimrod of these dreams, he was afraid and ordered the boy to be put to death. This story is told in the legend and it is confirmed by esoteric research. To prevent this faith, Abraham's father presented Nimrod with a stranger's child and had his own son brought up in a cave. Abraham was the first to transform forces ordinarily used to develop outer clairvoyance into the inner organ-shaping forces that support consciousness of the God within. The legend describes the inversion of this complex of forces when it tells us how God's grace allowed the child Abraham to suck milk from a finger of his own right hand during his three years in the cave. Self-nourishment, the internalization of forces that formerly produced the old clairvoyance, is wonderfully described in this story about the progenitor of the Hebrew people. When we realize the true basis of such legends, they make us realize why those entrusted with conveying the realities behind legends chose to express them only through images. Although such images could not kindle full consciousness of great events, they were quite suitable for awakening a feeling for them, and in ancient times that was enough. Abraham was the first to transform inner reflections of divine wisdom, or seeing the divine, into thinking about the divinity. Esoteric research emphasizes repeatedly that the physical body of Abraham, or Abraham as he was later known, was organized differently from the bodies of those around him, who were not yet able to develop a specific instrument for internalized thinking. They could shape thoughts while out of their bodies by developing forces in their etheric bodies, but they had not yet developed the instrument for thinking within the physical body. Abraham was truly the first to develop the physical instrument of thought in such an exemplary way. Hence, although of course this must also be taken with a requisite grain of salt, it would also be somewhat justifiable to say, as tradition tells us, that he invented arithmetic 
which is a type of scientific thinking that depends heavily on physical body. The inner structure and certainty of arithmetic approximate clairvoyant knowledge, yet it depends on a bodily organ. Okay, let me read that again. The inner structure and certainty of arithmetic approximate clairvoyant knowledge, yet it depends on a bodily organ. Here we see a profound inner connection between the forces formerly used for clairvoyant purposes and those now used to shape the inner organ of thinking. It was Abraham who first received the physical organ of thinking, which allows human beings to raise their thoughts to the Godhead. In the earlier times, the only way people could know anything about divine existence was through clairvoyant observation. Using thoughts to rise to the divine was possible only through the physical instrument first implanted in Abraham. Using a physical organ to grasp the thought of God altered people's relationship to the objective world and to their own subjective nature. In earlier esoteric schools, the thought of God had been grasped in divine wisdom, and it could be transmitted to those capable of learning to perceive in the etheric body, independent of the organs of the physical body. But heredity is the only means of transmitting a physical bodily instrument to someone else. In Abraham's case, the most important element was the physical organ, which had to be reproduced through heredity from generation to generation in order to persist on earth. Knowing this, we can see why the line of heredity, the fact that physical endowments are transmitted through the blood of generations, is so important to the Hebrew people. Abraham's initial physical endowment, the sculpting or crystallizing of the physical organ for comprehending the divine, had to become deeply entrenched. As it was transmitted from generation to generation, it pervaded and shaped human nature to an ever-increasing extent. Thus we might say that what Abraham received on behalf of the Hebrews' mission had to evolve and become perfected by passing from individual to individual through heredity. Only through heredity could a physical organ be perfected. For the being we know as Zarathustra to have the most perfect physical body, with organs capable of physically supporting the thought of the divine, the potential that had been planted in Abraham had to be raised to the highest possible level. It had to be concentrated and passed down through heredity until it could supply all the attributes that Zarathustra needed in a physical body. But a human physical body fit for Zarathustra's purpose could not be perfected in isolation. Gradually all three bodily garments had to be perfected through physical heredity. The physical, etheric, and astral bodies had to receive everything possible from physical heredity in the course of subsequent generations. We have often noted and described the law of seven-year periodicity, which governs the development of human individuals. For example, the development of the physical body occurs between birth and the sixth or seventh year of life. The development of the etheric body falls roughly between the seventh and fourteenth years. Similar but more profound laws govern the development of bodily garments over generations. Whereas an individual goes through each developmental stage in seven years, it takes seven generations to achieve a certain level of perfection in the physical body through heredity. Heredity, however, does not work directly from one generation to the next. The attributes we described are not transmitted directly from father to son or from mother to daughter, but from grandfather to grandson, 
that is, to every other generation. In terms of generations, each stage requires a number divisible by seven. But since heredity always skips a generation in such cases, we are actually looking at multiples of fourteen. Abraham's physical potential peaked after fourteen generations. Because the etheric body and the astral body also had to be perfected, their development also took fourteen generations each. In other words, the bodily organization that appeared as a potential in Abraham, the progenitor of the Hebrews, had to manifest in three times fourteen generations before it encompassed all three bodily garments. It took three times fourteen or forty-two generations for heredity to perfect the physical, etheric, and astral potentials planted in Abraham. By tracing three times fourteen generations of Abraham's descendants, we come to a human body fully pervaded by attributes that were merely potential in Abraham. Only this body was fit to serve as Zarathustra's incarnation. This is what we are told by the evangelist Matthew. His list of generations shows us specifically that there were fourteen generations from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the Babylonian captivity, and fourteen from the Babylonian captivity to the Christ. Through these three times fourteen generations, always skipping a generation, Abraham's potential with regard to the Hebrew mission was fully developed and fully incorporated into the human constitution. This line of descent culminated in a body that was suited to the incarnation of Zarathustra and made a completely new element available to humankind. It is important to understand that the beginning of Matthew's Gospel is drawn from great depths. We must also understand that the purpose of this list of three times fourteen generations is to show that Jesus of Nazareth inherited from Joseph the living distillation of Abraham's original potential, which had flowed through the Hebrew bloodline until it condensed in the instrument of Zarathustra's bodily garments, into which the Christ could then incarnate. The end of Lecture 3, given in Bern, September 3, 1910.